And that God has given us everything we need for life. He's addressed in his word uh, all that we need to live life skillfully or with wisdom. We've been studying Proverbs. That's the theme of the whole book, living life skillfully. It's as if wisdom is calling out on the street corners. Listen to me. This is how to live life. Wisdom's calling. Is anybody listening? I take it we are, or we wouldn't be in this place tonight and, and on the other occasions as well. When you think of biblical wisdom, you can substitute the word morality, a holy God, the one without sin, wants us to live a holy lifestyle, wants us to be like him. He's holy, and he wants us to reflect his holy nature. So a good synonym for biblical wisdom is living life morally. Which leads to this topic, which I'm reluctant and uncomfortable addressing, but we must because it's the next topic in the flow of Proverbs. Uh, It's in Proverbs chapter 5. We'll get there in a moment or so. And the theme of it is one, well, I suppose I'm ashamed to tell you, makes me uncomfortable. Uh, And I was trying to think about why I'm uncomfortable even talking about this. And I think it's because it's an indication of how far I, maybe we, have drifted from from the purity uh, of this particular activity and from its holiness and uh, from, well, from the whole concept of it as God has described it. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Yeah, I heard someone say it. It's, it's, the, it's sexual activity. It's sex. You know, even to say that word in church makes me uncomfortable um, but shame on me. God, God speaks about it, and uh, he's mindful of the topic, and uh, it is addressed here in Proverbs chapter 5 tonight, so we'll talk about it, and I will endeavor to do so in a discreet and holy manner because it's, it's, a, holy, it's a holy topic. Um, in fact, God is so mindful uh, of this topic, the topic of sex, that he put bounds around it. Those who don't know the God of the Bible uh, think he, and therefore we, his followers, are, uh, I guess the expression is, down on, on sex. And that is not really true. I, I, I mean, God so values uh, that particular activity uh, that he has put it in a context with boundaries. I mean, the world engages in the activity uh, without boundaries. It's preoccupied with uh, sexual thought and innuendo and uh, sexual misbehaviors and, and all the rest, and yet accuses the God of the Bible and we, his followers, of devaluing it. No, the opposite is true. Folks, you protect something that you value, and, and that's what God has done. And the protection God has given around uh, a sexual activity is to put sex in a particular context. That's how that's how it works. And the context, it, it consists of a relationship between a man and a woman. Isn't it a sorrowful state of affairs that we have to re, re-emphasize that? That the lines have gotten so blurred that, that we think a, a commitment between two same-gender people constitute marriage well, in spite of the fact that it has been so legislated, that, that's just not the biblical definition of, 
of marriage. And so, so the context in which God has put sexual, all sexual activity, is one of a relationship of commitment, covenant commitment, publicly attested to. Those are the vows at a wedding ceremony. To me, that's the central uh, import of a wedding, the public expression of vows where one says to the other in so many words, in sickness or in health, in good times and bad, for better or for worse, in perpetuity, uh, I will fulfill my covenant uh, uh, commitment to you. In other words, marriage. So God has taken sexual activity, which he so values and sees to be so uh, wonderful and such a blessing for humankind, and because he so values it, he's bounded it by covenant marriage. And he, he says, um, uh, experiencing sexual activity, therefore, uh, before marriage or outside of marriage is absolutely contrary, contrary to his will. But he's not down on sex, and he's not trying to to cramp our style, as I heard someone say the other day. <sighs> he so values the activity, he doesn't want us to frivolously engage in it. And so the context for the manifestation of sexual activity is marriage. Now, folks, in spite of the passage of time, which has brought all kinds of societal changes I hope you know that our holy God, our unchangeably holy God, has never changed his mind on the topic of sex. And society has its ideas, and they come and go, uh, but God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, has remained unchangeable in his convictions, clearly stated in the Bible, about sexual activity. But that's not true in the surrounding society. For instance, I just read of a very recent Gallup poll, which revealed that uh, this will be no surprise to you. Amongst Americans, acceptance of sexual immorality is growing. Does that shock you? I mean, we, we know this. So, for instance, uh, Gallup did a poll in 2001 and compared it to the results of another poll in 2015. So you have a, approximately a 15-year gap. And the question uh, which was asked of those polled had to do with the uh, acceptance of homosexual relations. So in 2001, 40% of those polled uh, saw no problem and uh, registered their acceptance of homosexual relations. But in 2015, the number grew by 23 percentage points. Now, 63% of the American population polled uh, see no problem with that kind of transaction. Uh, also in 2001, in comparison to 2015, uh, people were polled with regard to the uh, acceptance of heterosexual sexual relations outside of marriage. In 2001, 53% of those polled said, uh, no, no problem if it's two consenting adults, even if it's in violation of their marital vows. But in 2015, the number had grown, and this should be no surprise that we're in trouble, it had grown to 68%. 
68% of those who responded to the poll uh, indicated there's really no problem with extramarital sex as long as it's not one imposing himself or herself on another. And folks, we just sang songs in praise of Almighty God. One of the things we could praise him for is that he's patient and long-suffering with us, <clears throat> much more than we are with one another. By rights, holy God should preserve and save not a one of us. Look at the sinful condition we have brought to his otherwise initially um, uh, uh, incorruptible and sin-free world. And yet he, yet he patiently... Uh, gives us opportunity to repent, to turn to, to turn to him. So our perspectives on sexuality are changing by the moment, but God's are not, and he has expressed through Solomon some of his absolute standards with, regarding, uh, with regard to sexual activity in Proverbs chapter 5, and that's what uh, we'll take a look at, and I could uh, stall no longer. We have to we have to get to this. So here it is, uh, Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. My son, see Solomon is speaking to his son whom he loves, but don't think this doesn't apply for, for most of us here who've accepted Christ Jesus. We're sons and daughters of the Father. And just as the father of this son, Solomon, wished the best for his son, our heavenly Father wishes the best for us. My son, give attention to my wisdom, says Solomon. Incline your ear to my understanding. And here you have this oft-repeated appeal. Listen, my son, please listen to words of wisdom. It's the heart cry of our heavenly Father. Would you please listen? Would you please let me guide you through life? I care about how you live. I'm the giver of life. Your father knows best. Uh, do this, it says in verse 2, that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips, now here we go, of an adulteress drip honey and smoother than oil is her speech. So Solomon is telling his son uh, about the inevitability of sexual temptation. It's going to come in the world in which we live. Solomon is, is saying this to his son. He's being honest with him. And so he warns him here about uh, one he refers to as the adulteress. Your Bible might say the strange woman. Strange. What that means is, well, first of all, it could be a, a prostitute in view here, but also it could be a strange woman in this sense. It would be strange that you would involve yourself in an intimate relationship with this lady who ought to be out of your sphere of intimacy. She is it is strange that you would inv invite her close in when, in fact, um, you should set boundaries with regard to this particular woman. And Solomon says to his son, you know, her words, the words of an adulteress, um, they're going to seem to be sweet like honey, which is the sweetest substance in ancient Israel. And, and furthermore, he says, and they'll also seem to be smooth like olive oil, which is the smoothest substance in ancient Israel. But Solomon will go on to say, but it won't remain that way. Now, we could learn something, I think, maybe helpful about sexual temptation, even without going any further, and it's this. 
Because conversation taps into our emotions. You see what I mean? Conversation addresses emotional needs or unmet needs. And the sex drive is largely emotional. You know this, don't you? I mean, the world is making it look like a purely hormonal, physical kind of a thing. But that's not true. There, can, there can't even be satisfying uh, sexual activity if one is emotionally distraught. Those needs have to be addressed first. So sexual uh, boundary crossing uh, almost always begins with the crossing of an emotional boundary. You know what I mean? Not a physical. So sometimes what you have is not two people who are morally depraved and plan to rebel against God's standards. It's usually two people who don't understand their motivations. Don't know. They're not in touch with what's going on. They don't know how they feel. And therefore, they can't guard against it. And suddenly, they're in the same place at the same time. And emotionally, it feels good. And that's the beginning of sexual impropriety. And so Solomon says to his son, be careful of words. They may be sweet like honey and smooth as oil. But, but well, here's what happens. Verse 4, in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Quickly, the movement is from sweetness, the sweetness of honey, to the bitterness of wormwood. In other words, folks, sexual temptation is thoroughly deceptive. Thoroughly deceptive. It never delivers the goods. You think, or I think, it will. It is always, always a lie. And at the moment of sexual temptation, I would like to encourage you to remember that. I would like you to think of names, prominent people, men and women, even in our day, whether in the political realm or uh, in theater or uh, clergy, named people whom you know whose whole lives and reputations have been ruined and besmirched by sexual impropriety. I would like you to remember that at the point of temptation and find out what seems to be sweet and smooth in the end. Every decision has a consequence, and in the end, it's bitter as, as wormwood. Yes, because the loose woman, verse 5, is described as one whose feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She doesn't ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She doesn't know it. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. You know what Solomon is saying? Sexual temptation is so powerful that he counsels young men and all of us by extension to stay as far away from it as possible. Why? No man, no woman could entertain the idea of having an affair <laughs> because we're at risk even to entertain the idea. And there are certain points where we have gotten so close to it, we cannot turn away from it. Therefore, Solomon, in essence, he gives the most practical bit of advice here in verse 8. He essentially says, draw the line in the sand far back from the actual 
activity which you wish not to be involved in. Don't toe the line because in the right circumstances you'll go over the line. Don't go near the door of her house. Stay away. So my advice is to come up with a policy, a standard, practices with regard to the opposite sex that you adhere to without exception. I have some uh, of my own, which I'll tell you about, but I want to tell you this. I have a, a policy. One is never to be alone in a car with a woman other than my wife. Never, never, never. That's a policy I've lived by uh, since I became a Christian, 1973. But there have been times, very, I don't mind admitting this to you because we're all the same, I've been tempted to compromise on that particular policy. Bells and whistles, alarm signals ought to go off. And you ought to ask yourself the question, I have this practice and policy, why? Am I entertaining the idea of compromising on it now? Get in touch with what's going on inside you to sort of cool your jets. If the policy has validity, what is it about this situation that's enticing you to compromise on it? So that's one of my policies. Never ride in the car alone with a woman other than my wife. I've looked ridiculous at times because of that policy. I remember once we had a meeting, a staff meeting across the street. It was pouring cats and dogs. My then secretary said, hop in the car, I'll drive you across. I said, no, I'll just walk. I got wet. It was ridiculous. It's stupid. And who knows what people thought. I, got, I would rather look like a weirdo then cross the line of sexual temptation, which I know I'm capable of. You know what gets me nervous? When someone says, that could never happen to me. <gasps> that gets me nervous. It could happen to me. Therefore, I draw the line in the sand. Some uh, a person said to me once, oh, you're such a strong and virtuous, godly man. No, the opposite. I'm weak. It's God's spirit who's uncompromisingly strong, but my flesh is ready to compromise at a moment's notice. Therefore, out of weakness, not strength, you want to draw the line way back because you can't trust yourself when you get too close. So I have policies about touch. No frontal hugging with a, another woman. No, no, no. Touch, very important. A word, a look and a touch, side to side. Never pulling a woman in close, never. Open palm, pat like this. No problem, touch is a good thing, but be very, very, very careful. Um, um, I, if I'm away, I have a policy away from my wife. I have a, a policy and procedure about phone calls, making sure she knows of my whereabouts and all the rest, policies. Um, I have policies about what's on my computer and where my computer is. I have every, uh, what do they call these things? Filter? Imaginable to humankind I, because I don't trust me. I don't think I'm all that prone to deliberately look for a pornographic site, but it's crazy. You do some research on it 
and you, you're looking at, you think, an innocent word, and who knows what will pop up. So I have all these filters. Also, I have a shared computer. It's not mine alone. My wife has access to it. I don't have a secret password. When my boys come over the house, there's dad's computer. The monitor, the screen is right there. I, I don't have anything to hide because I don't trust myself. So it's an accountability kind of a thing. Anyway, uh, th- these practical sort of things are equivalent to what Solomon says here. Don't get that close to it. You're not strong enough if you're too close to then back away. Therefore, back away before you get too, too close. Now you might be saying, oh, come on, Stuart. I'm not susceptible to this stuff. Well, uh, I don't know. I think you're lying. Um, I'll tell you who's susceptible. Anyone who has had unsati- or is having unsatisfying relationships. Your susceptibility factor just went up. Anyone who has unmet emotional needs. Raise your hand. No, no, don't do that. That's everybody. Anyone who has had unmet emotional needs. Anyone, get this, who is tired, worn out, and fatigued. You wouldn't think so. Anyone who's hungry, huh? When those fundamental human needs are not met, your susceptibility to seek pleasure so as to mitigate against pain goes up. Um, anyone who is lonely, anyone who is in pain, you are susceptible. You are susceptible. You know who's really susceptible? Pastors, ministers. What? Yeah, they are. Why? Because sometimes pastors confuse passion for God with passion for the ministry. And it becomes all labor. And, and we pastors can lose our first love. And it becomes just drudgery. We've moved past God, our first love. And we're just busy doing the work of ministry. And then we say angrily. Here's another thing that happens with ministers. You get to the point where you say, everyone in that church wants a piece of me. Everyone wants my time. Texting and emails and calls and visits and all. And then they're upset when you don't get back with them right away. What about me? I'm a person. I have needs. And angrily, ministers seek to meet their needs in an illegitimate way. Ministers are susceptible, absolutely. Uh, uh, A minister named J. Allen Peterson said, no one, however chosen, blessed, and used of God is immune to an extramarital affair. It's true. Solomon says, don't do it, don't do it. Why not? Verse 9, see, you you will give your vigor, verse 9, you'll give your vigor to others, your years to the cruel one. Your vigor, your energy will be dissipated. How? Secrets. You know how much energy it takes to live a double life? Secrets, clandestine meetings, rendezvous, time, deception, energy depleted and dissipated. You will give your vigor to another. In verse 10, strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. You know what that's saying? Sexual immorality is expensive. Yeah. Your hard-earned goods will go to another. Many have squandered small fortunes on food for their 
partner, their consort, gifts, hotels for sexual trysts and all the rest. Others have been blackmailed by the spouse of someone who uh, is involved in an illicit relationship. Hush money. Folks, few experiences in life are more expensive than sexual immorality, Solomon says. In verse 11, and you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. I don't think this is a specific reference to sexually transmitted diseases, but I think it applies. They existed in Solomon's day. They surely do in ours. In verse 12, and you say, how I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. I've not listened to the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to my instructors. I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation. <clears throat> ruin in the midst of the assembly. Folks, one's good name, which one perhaps has worked on the better part of their adult life to establish, one's good name could be lost in one night. In one night, one can lose the trust and respect of his or her spouse and children and end up divorced and alone. You can, a man operating sexually outside of marriage, can father illegitimate children who would then be deprived of the blessings of being raised by a mother and a father. You can infect your spouse with a sexually transmitted disease, and so God, through Solomon, metaphorically yet graphically says this. I'll just read the text. Verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, sex in the context of marriage, and fresh water from your own well. Should your springs be dispersed abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be yours alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. That doesn't mean young wife. It means your wife, regardless of her age now, which you covenanted with when you were both younger. That's what it means. Verse 19, as a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her, I'm uncomfortable here, but God gave this, let her breast satisfy you at all times, be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? Folks, safe sex, which we hear about, is sex with your spouse alone. That's safe sex. But I want to tell you something. That's often difficult. Did you know that? To have relations with one's spouse, and I'll tell you why. You're tired. Day has unfolded. It's been filled with stressors. And it's time, perhaps, for you and your spouse to be together. And you think about it, and you say, my goodness, it'll take a lot of work and effort because you have to talk first. You have to make conversation. You have to say, how was your day? <laughs> you have to do this. Not only does it require effort, it also involves risk, risk of rejection. So you are tempted to think of um, false intimacy. Intimacy with one's spouse requires work, effort, and involves risk. 
So instead, we create an illicit relationship uh, defined by false intimacy in which we say, I know a way to find emotional, relational relief without having to work hard at it and without the risk of failure. You create a fantasy, whether it's pornographic, uh, whether it's um, with another person. You imagine victory and success and peaked performance and all the rest and uh, uh, like stuff you see on on movies and 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 you try to regulate your own pleasure producing situation and in the process of trying to regulate your your own life situation i'll tell you what happens we lose the capacity to regulate our passions and we become out of control and so this is this is why i say one of the susceptibility factors for sexual immorality is getting tired you don't have the energy to keep uh, relations in the right context. It requires work. And so my counsel uh, to me and to you is rest, eat, stay healthy. Listen to me. I would rather say no to a church member about an invitation to do something and risk offending that church member than be so exhausted, I think I need a break today, and I avoid my wife, and instead look for some quick fix. Nope. None of us are that important uh, to exhaust ourselves for the kingdom of God. Do you know he just gives us ministry opportunities essentially to keep us off the streets? Because he could get the job done without us. You, You know what I mean. So, Uh, Well, anyway, verse 21, Solomon says, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. Does that make you nervous? You know, it shouldn't. In order to make you happy, tell you why. Can you imagine transcendent deity, almighty God, no beginning, no end, who has his eye upon us? Can you imagine this God caring so much about how we live that he watches us. No, this should not be a fearful, terrifying enterprise. This is a heavenly father saying, you mean something to me. I care about how you live, and therefore I watch how you do things. Now, be clear about this. Sin, all sin, is an issue between the sinner and the Lord. And all sin, this is my opinion, you, you, you could reject it. In my opinion, all sin is really at the heart a quest to be independent of God. That's the fundamental base of all manifestations of sin. It's a quest to be independent of God, to do things our way. Our sinful hearts are on an almost constant quest um, to to do two things. One, avoid pain, and two, seek pleasure. Those are the two things that make the world go round. We're on a quest to avoid pain and seek pleasure. Now imagine this. If I can work out a situation which accomplishes both, a situation that alleviates my pain and increases my pleasure, if I can do that by myself without having to do things God's way, In essence, I become my own God. I don't have to wait on him. I don't have to depend on him. I I, 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 I don't have to pray to him. (laughs) I can increase 
positive outcomes in my life and decrease negative ones. And that is so enticing and alluring. If it works, whatever it is you do, it becomes a stronghold, bondage, and addiction, a sexual addiction. But again, it's not physical, it's emotional. Now I am free from having to depend on God, from having to do things his way, from having to wait on him. I can bring about, I can create, I'm the creator. I can create in form and fashion a a situation of my own that decreases my pain and increases my pleasure. Folks, that's the fundamental issue behind, in my opinion, all sin, including sexual sin. It's this. We don't want to trust God to meet our needs. That's the case. But folks, our quest for autonomy backfires. Hence, we read in verse 22, his own iniquities, that's a word for sin, will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. Sin itself ensnares and ties a person down like robes. Though people like to talk about the freedom to do what they want to do, to sin with great vigor and all the rest. Sin actually robs us of freedom. And Solomon says in verse 23, what will happen is that he'll die for lack of instruction, and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. And I'll bet you some here uh, have done this very thing, have gone astray. So what is there to say to you? Um, Could I suggest uh, a few things that you ought to do now? having crossed the line of sexual immorality. What does that mean? Well, obviously, sex outside of the context of marriage, including solo sex and pornographic involvement and all that kind of stuff. Um, What do you do having already crossed the line? Here's the first thing. One, feel the pain. Now, uh, that sounds like a weird thing to do because we're supposed to comfort one another. Oh, no. The worst thing you can do is rush too soon to comfort someone before the consequence of their sin helps them to be less likely to do it again. So what you want to do uh, with someone is to say you've entered into this relationship to diminish the pain in your life, but it has increased it, has it not? Uh, Pain has not only increased in your life, but it has pained uh, your children and your spouse as well, hasn't it? Uh, So you want to really develop that. So if I was you, I would uh, evaluate the pain quotient. And I would say, did your plan to dethrone God and take care of your own needs to decrease pain, increase pleasure, did it work? How are you doing right now? So the first step is feel the pain. Your ways don't work. Second thing, understand that your needs are legitimate. You may have labeled yourself a sexual pervert. Uh, You may have erected a monument to your sin. You're not an extraordinary sinner. You're just an ordinary sinner like the rest of us. Uh, Don't erect a monument to it. You're just a slob like the rest of us. 
You're not sinning any better than anybody else. You're just a sinner like all of us. So you want to recognize that your needs are legitimate. The issue is you have sought to meet them illegitimately. You see what I mean? So don't misdiagnose the deal. You're probably not some monster, some exception to the rule. You're a fleshly human being on a quest for independence from God. And look what it's gotten you. And so you want to evaluate your needs. Oh, God, I need a rest. Oh, God, I need healthy relationships. Oh, God, I need healthy healing of my unmet emotional needs. Oh, God, I need marital counseling. Whatever it is, legitimate needs. So what? don't misdiagnose it. What you've done is sought to meet legitimate needs illegitimately. So first thing, feel the pain. Second, understand your needs are legitimate. Now the third, most important, turn back to God. You need his cleansing. You need his forgiveness. Earlier in verse 9, Solomon told the sexual sinner, you'll give your vigor to others. You'll give your years to the cruel one. You know what will deplete your energy more quickly than just about anything? Guilt. Guilt. David, Solomon's son, knew about this firsthand. He had a relationship you know, with someone else's wife. He became so guilt-ridden over it. He wrote this in Psalm 32. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. Boy, if that isn't an illustration of clinical depression, I don't know what is. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You can't for too long carry this load of guilt before it just depletes your very life. I was a counselor in a mental health clinic in, of all places, England years ago. I was in the military. It was a military mental health clinic. A man came in. I think I told you this story, but uh, I'd like to repeat it. A man came in. He showed all the, uh, the uh, indications of depression, no bounce in his step, no eye contact, uh, you know, head drooping, all the rest. He went in to have a session with one of my... Um, colleagues, and then he came out 45 minutes later. My goodness, it was like a miracle transformation. This guy is, you know, he's walking straight up and bouncing his steps. He's got a smile on his face, the whole deal. I thought, wow, what kind of counselor was that? So I went in to see my friend. He said, how'd you pull it off? What'd you do? And he said, well, the guy is sleeping with his next door neighbor, and he's been feeling guilty about it. And I said, yeah. And he said, I told him he shouldn't feel guilty about it. Because uh, she agrees, he agrees, you know, oh, they love their spouses. This is just a, you know, means of recreation and relaxation. I told the man for the first time in his life, he has to stop thinking about others and start thinking about himself. Well, you know, if you heard all that stuff from an authority figure, good night. You'd have a bounce in your step, too. You, I'm not accountable. I can do whatever I want. I'm really a good person. This was a good and acceptable thing. Folks, that is not the way to resolve guilt, to, to dilute sin. You know what sin did? Sent the sinless one to the cross. Like a rose, trampled on the ground. You can uh, use euphemisms and call it all you want. 
Sin is sin. Well, then how then do you resolve the guilt of your sin? If it's not getting some counselor to talk it out of existence, well, I'll refer back to David again, who uh, uh, in Psalm 32 says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. That'll give you a bounce in your step. That'll help you to stand up straight. That'll relieve you of a load you could not be relieved of. Otherwise, confession. It means to agree with God. Oh, God, I agree. This is sin. In spite of the fact that statistically more and more are engaging in it, still I violated your absolute moral standard, which is not subject to change. And then confession, when I say it means agree with God, you want to confess the right thing. You know, the uh, thing you're confessing is not actually sexual sin. That's the symptom. As I mentioned earlier, the thing you really want to confess is this. Oh, God, I haven't trusted you to meet my needs. I've done things on my own. Oh, God, I don't want to wait on you. I don't want to depend on you. I don't want to look to you. I don't want to do things your way. Oh, God, I confess. I thought I can better orchestrate events in my life than I think you can. Oh, God, my sin is not sexual. That's the symptom. My sin is autonomy from you. Oh, God, I'm trying to be the master of my own destiny. That's the sin. That's what you confess. And uh, since confession means agreeing with God, just as David said, you forgave the guilt of my sin, you agree with God. It's forgiven. (laughs) And you go down the road just as if you have never sinned. So three things. One, feel the pain. Two, understand that your needs are legitimate, but you've chosen illegitimate means of meeting the needs. And three, confess the right thing. Oh, God, I've tried to live independently of you. Now, folks, I want to ask you to do something uh, I've thought about all day, and uh, this is not some contrived thing. I really mean it. Uh, My biggest fear is that I won't finish the course well, one way or the other. You know, I've run the race. I've kept the faith. Uh, In the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Many of my peers won't have it. They have forfeited it. They haven't finished the race. It's my biggest fear. I want to finish well. I surely do not want to cross the bounds of sexual activity that God has said. But I know I'm as susceptible as anyone. Therefore, I want to ask you something, and I mean this. Would you be willing to pray for me? Would you pray, oh God, keep Stuart sexually pure. Help him to be holy as thou art holy. Help him to look to you for the satisfaction of all his needs in his time. Help him to finish the race well. Keep him from temptation. Would you be willing to do that? If you are, I I really mean this. Would you raise your hand? I just want to say, I can't thank you enough. That means a lot. Now, I want to ask you another question. Would you allow me to return the favor? Would you allow me to pray for you? If so, would you raise your hand once again? Now, I want you to just see something, and my hand's up too. You know what this shows me? 
we are all chickens in this coop. <laughs> Nobody has arrived. We're all in the process of becoming more like Jesus. We're admitting our susceptibility and, our, and the weakness of our flesh, and we're counting on our church family to hold us accountable and to give us prayer support. Uh, today was a challenging day for me, and I couldn't wait to get here tonight. Not just because I was interested in what I had to say. I, 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 I knew that. I wanted to be with church family. I want to be prayed for. I want to worship together with church family. I want to have conversations. I want to enjoy the company with like-minded people. A local church family. Oh, my goodness. It's just worth more than you can imagine. What we just did, what we just committed to, you can't get anywhere else in any other. Yes, Stuart, I will pray to our Father for you. And Stuart says the same thing. It means a lot. So let's do this on behalf of one another. Allow me to pray. Lord Jesus, we, we've, we've shared our hearts. We're looking at your words, your text. Thank you for being so clear and honest with us. Thank you for providing for us marvelous guidelines for life. Thank you for watching us. Thank you for keeping your eye upon us. No one here need feel left alone and rejected. My heavens, your focus of attention is on each of us, and we're so very, very grateful. Oh, God, thank you for the church family who has committed to pray for me. I want to finish well. I would love for you to say to me one day, well done, good and faithful servant. Rather than Stuart, you forfeited so much opportunity because of sin. So thank you, oh God, for my church family praying that. And now, Lord, would you hear my prayers on their behalf? Oh God, saved people love you because you have loved them first and desire to honor you and do that which is pleasing to you. But as you know, there's a war inside of us, flesh versus spirit, and we are prone sometimes to feed the flesh when we should starve it. Let that not be the case with my brothers and sisters. Oh, God in heaven, I pray for a hedge of protection around each who asked for prayer. Oh, God, would you keep each man, each woman from temptation, which he, she does not have the strength to say no to. And, oh, God, would you put it in the life of each brother or sister at the point of temptation to ask the question, this that I'm about to engage in, what will it really do for me? Reputation, energy, guilt, family. Oh, God, would you put a check in our spirit? Help us to draw each of us the line in the sand. Even if some would think us to be odd, fanatic, who cares? Oh, God, help us to put bounds around sexual activity, the likes of which you have put around it, for it's a holy activity, which we have besmirched. Oh, God in heaven, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we who are saved would run the race with endurance, finish the race in sexual purity, and yearn to have you say when we come upon you for the first time, well done, good and faithful servants. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.